The book of Psalms is like a clinic on how to deal with life when it's out of control. And today, Psalm 51 may be more than most of the Psalms. It's powerful. So open your Bible to Psalm 51, and why don't I pray for you before we even start. This sermon deals all about guilt. Lord, we come to you, and often guilt seems to guide us in ways we don't want to go. And yet sometimes it's the greatest Savior and guides us in ways we do want to go. Our conscience, Lord, is what we're focused on here today because Psalm 51 focuses on our conscience. I'm sure everyone in this room has a conscience. Some of us may be more healthy than others. Then again, maybe not. But I pray that today, like we talk about in this whole series, we would be honest to God about where we're really at, about what's really going on, what we're really feeling, what we're really thinking. Help everyone here, Lord, come to grips with the reality of where they're at with you, where they're at even with themselves and with the church and other people and friendships and marriage. God, I pray that today we would just be awashed with honesty, awashed with freedom from the guilt that seems to plague us sometimes. And I pray that for everybody, everybody that can hear me, in Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into Psalm 51, you know, there's like an intro to it, but even before I read that, you know, the the subject is really about guilt. I don't know how familiar you are with guilt. I'm sure you've had your bouts with guilt before. Guilt can be like a torturer, like a tormentor, constantly bombarding you with thoughts and questions and doubts. But then again, guilt can sometimes be like a hero, leading you and guiding you to what you need to do, where you need to go. I've seen guilt turn a pretty woman or a handsome man into someone really ugly inside. I've seen guilt turn a pretty woman or a handsome man ugly on the outside. Let me explain. There's a thing called flat affect. Psychologists use this term. What that means is someone experiences some negative emotion like guilt, and they push it down. I'm not going to feel that. I'm not going to feel your denial. I'm not going to feel that. Well, what we often don't know is when you push down your negative emotions, the positive ones go right with them, and you don't feel joy. And you don't feel happiness. You have flat affect. You don't feel nothing. Makes you ugly. Takes a smile off your face the joy out of your heart. This passage teaches us how to deal with guilt. And like I just reflected to you, when you don't deal with it, it deals with you. So what do we do to deal with guilt? Well, in this passage, it's Psalm 51 is, is him all de- is David, the writer, dealing with his guilt. But if you read the beginning of it, notice what it starts out with. It's got this little pre-thing uh, before it. Look what it says. To the choir master, in other words, here's instructions when you want to sing this or say this or use this in in, in the assembly. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Do you know where that is? That's in the book of 2 Samuel. So if you turn in your Bible to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12, it's where it's discussed. In other words, that's the context for what we're going to read and study in Psalm 51. So we've got to go back to Samuel and look at what's, what the Samuel the prophet recorded about what happened. And I'll read it to you. Ready? 
Second Samuel chapter 11. You can follow along with me if you got your Bible or on the screen. Starting with verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. This is when he's the king of Israel. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Remember now, this is David, the same guy that slew Goliath, the, the giant. Well, nobody else would. They're all chickens. He has such great faith. Now he's committing what we call adultery. So what did he do? He thought to himself, oh, this is terrible. Now everybody's going to find out. So he got an idea. Hey, Joab, chief of the military outfit he had going, they're fighting a battle against the Ammonites, and David wasn't there. So he says, Joab, send to me Uriah, this guy, the husband of Bathsheba. So Uriah comes home, meets the king. King's talking to him. How's it going out there? How's Joab doing? How's the fighting going? He's telling him all the details. He says, listen, I just want to give you a break. You're a great warrior. I'm proud of you. I want to send you home, spend some time with your wife. See, David's thinking, yeah, if he goes to sleep with his wife now, he'll think it's his baby, and everything will be cool. But Uriah shocks everybody and shocks David when he goes, you know what? I'm not going back home. All my brothers are out there fighting on the, on the front line. It's not right. Uh-uh, it's not right for me to do that. I'm staying right here at your doorstep. I won't leave. David's thinking, oh, gee, what do I got to do? So the guy stays overnight. David comes up with another idea. Got a deal. He's trying to quiet the guilt, put away the shame. Let anybody, nobody's got to find out. That was his number one objective, right? When you find that true about yourself, you're in bad shape. So he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll get him drunk. So the next night he says, you're right, come on over to the palace. We're having a big party. And Uriah gets drunk. And Uriah says, well, I'm still not going back to my wife. I'm going to stay right here at the doorstep. It's not right. It's not honorable. I'll stay right here. So he sleeps overnight in the king's palace again. Doesn't even go home yet. And so the third night, David decides, okay, it's time to go back. Writes a letter to Joab. And in the letter, in the letter he has him carry, it says, Joab. I want you to take Uriah and put him on the front line. And when the warriors, in the hottest part of the battle, and when the warriors march forward, I want you to have all the guys pull back and let Uriah be in the front and take it. I want him to die. Yes, sir, says Joab. And Joab does that very thing, puts Uriah in a vulnerable place so that Uriah, the husband, a Bathsheba, who David slept with, gets murdered, killed. Okay, maybe the blood's not on David's hands, but he orchestrated it all. He planned it. In our country, in the courts, he'd go to prison probably for life, right? So time passes. David figures, well, 
she hadn't got a husband, I might as well marry her. So she becomes one of David's wives. Ooh, the mess. And everything just seems to be fine. Until she has the baby. He's got the baby. He's growing up the little baby with his children. And God sends the prophet Nathan. That's what this psalm is after. Nathan comes and talks to them. And look at chapter 12. Look what Nathan does. Here Nathan comes before the Lord and says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. He's a prophet. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and and, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for his guest, for the guest, who had, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Well, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if there, there, this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then he goes on to tell him, well, you're going to have some consequences to this in your life and in your family. You're going to have some consequences with this little baby is going to die. And he says all that. And what does, Nathan, what does David say in response? Psalm 51, ready? That's what it told us. This is the, the pretext to Psalm 51. Turn to Psalm 51. Because right here, David starts a prayer, starting with verse 1, all the way through through verse 19. And the first thing we learn is this. When you're feeling really guilty, when you feel you're ashamed, when you feel you did something that's really bad, what should you do? Well, the basic thing you learn here is what? Pray. <laughs> There's only one way out of this. You've got to cry out to God. When you're feeling guilt, when guilt is torturing you and tormenting you, you need to pray. That's the first thing we learn. As I put down in your outline, it's called the big idea. To deal with guilt, pray. It's that simple, folks. This is not hard. This is not complex. Pray. Because you can't do anything about it. You can't get away from it. You can't work your way out of this. So pray. And pray for three things. Cleansing, change, and commitment. Those three C's. Cleansing is the first one. Point one. Pray for cleansing. Look at verses one and two. How does David start out after Nathan says this to him and he's feeling the extreme guilt? He says this. Ready? Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, and according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. 
David does the only thing he could possibly do because he's got no leg to stand on, no defense, no rationale he could give God. God's seen it all. God knows it all. So what does he say? Oh, Lord, please have mercy on me. Please, please, please. He's like begging. This is extremely important for you and I to understand right here at the very beginning. Because one who cries for mercy, one who looks to God for salvation is one who gets saved. This, this takes humility. This takes putting away your pride. And if for some reason you are, are very defensive or too proud to do this, I'm sorry. I can't help you at all. <laughs> really, there's no way out that a, pre- a preacher could help you. I don't think there's any way out. A psychologist could help you. You got no hope. You're stuck in your guilt. It's going to eat you alive. And I've seen it do it. If you can humble yourself, you can find this. See, he cries out for mercy, and what's mercy? Mercy is, is begging God for his mercy toward you, his compassion toward you, rather than the punishment you deserve. That's what it is when you ask for mercy, saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve. David knows what he deserves. He said it himself. That guy deserves to die. Yeah, he's right. Nathan says, well, you're talking about you, not some random guy. Notice he says, blot out, wash me, cleanse me. Take it off my record is what that means. He's begging God. for. Look at verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David's making much of his sin. This is like his, his true confession saying, I know, I know my transgressions, my sin, it's ever before me. He's making much of his sin, not little of it. Please listen to what's going on here. This is so significant. When you make little of your sin, you are sinning again. You are really pulling more guilt into your life, not less. David does nothing to defend himself, but simply says, I know my sin. He says, in fact, he says, it's ever before me. Have you ever experienced that? Where there's something you did, something you, 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 you said that's so shameful, so embarrassing, so wrong, so nasty, so ugly, so dirty. You don't even like to think about it. You don't want, you don't want anybody to admit it. And, you don't. and maybe it keeps coming back to you. You did it last week, or you did it last month, or you did it last year. It was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. You're plagued by it. Like I said, sometimes guilt is like a torturer until you confess it. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, it says in 1 John 1, 9. David is experiencing that. We see that lived out right here. He's trying to tell us, I think, God's trying to tell us by showing us David's way to how to deal with it. Look at verse 4. Instead of that tape that plays in your mind all the time, my sin is ever before me, he says, well, I realize now, Lord, it's happening because against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It's almost as though he can see the heavenly scene where he, he holds nothing back and says, Lord, I've, it's really... You know, it wasn't just that I hurt Bathsheba. It's not just that this little baby now is going to die. It's not just that I murdered her husband. Not just that I've been deceptive and, and betrayal and all these different things. It's about you. 
the worst of it all is you, who've been nothing but kind to me and helping me and saving me and letting me be the king. And oh, my God, that's what he's feeling. It's against you, Lord. Like he says that's against you. Remember, remember Nathan said, why have you, what was that? He said, why have you, uh, I think I wrote it down here. Why have you despised or betrayed the Lord, the word of the Lord? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? It's almost as though David could see the picture in heaven. Here's the demons mocking God and the angels weeping. And he could feel it like, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Look what I did to you. I can't believe I did this to you. That's what he's saying. In verse 4, he's basically justifying God when he says that, uh, you know, you, I've sinned against you and so that you may be justified in your words. I know that you're blameless in your judgments. He says, it's not nothing to do with you, Lord. It's about me. Oh, and sometimes we fall into that, don't we? Where we justify ourselves like, well, <laughs> sorry, it's just, you know, it's how I am. I do stupid things, you know, sorry. Do you ever think, because sometimes we use that excuse, right? But it's just an excuse. Or, boy, if you grew up in the family I grew up in, I mean, like, this is nothing compared to what my dad did or my mom. Or, like, where's that? Again, just justification. There's none of that here. To get rid of guilt, you don't have any of that. You're just like, it's wrong. It's sin. It's me, Lord, me. And I sinned against you. That's David. That's how he gets free. That's how we get free of guilt. You admit the truth. He goes on now in verses 5 and 6 in his confession. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's saying, everything's on the line. I'm going to open the books. You can see I was born in iniquity. I'm going to... You know, one of the key things we see here is he's so desperate for God that he, he just says, here, here it is, Lord, everything. You, you know me. You know I was brought forth in iniquity. It's like he lays everything on the table. Listen to me. Please listen to me. You're not going to get better. Guilt's not going to stop leaving. It's not going to leave you alone until you lay it all on the table. You cover stuff up, even a little bit, ain't going to work. If we confess our sins. You know, right before confessing your sin, 1 John, it says 1 John 1, 7, before 1 John 1, 9, it says what? Walk in the light as he is in the light. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. Walking in the light, being open and honest before God is your only hope. That's what David realizes. His only hope is. And he even mentions this idea of truth. Did you catch that? Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. No holding back. <laughs> I remember one time, this years ago, man, I don't know how many years back, but I was in a group of guys, we're having a Bible study, and we were going through some of this, and there's a guy in the group that made a very interesting observation. He says, wait a minute, uh, how much did he know about God? David, like, I said, well, the Pentateuch, you know, first five books of the Old Testament, he, he knew that stuff, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all that. He knew the law of God, all these things. I said, but, you know, he, he didn't know about the prophets, some of the prophets listed later, maybe some of the book of Proverbs, I don't know, you know. 
We started talking about that. He said, well, obviously he didn't know about Jesus yet. He didn't know about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. He didn't know about Jesus raising the dead. He didn't know about all the miracles of Jesus, the words of Jesus. He didn't know about the apostles and the starting of the church. He didn't know about the book of Revelation, how it's all going to end. So, so this guy says to me, well, so then he knew like this much, and we know like this much. And I go, uh, yeah. And I go, what you getting at? He says, it just seems to me like for him to commit adultery and murder in light of what he knew, for me who knows so much more, it'd be like peeking at pornography. Well, I never thought of it like that. But he's saying, yeah, I have so much more given to me, so much more responsibility, so much more understanding. I mean, why would I fudge even a little bit? That would be like a comparison to what he did that would seem so big to us. He says, really? I have so much more advantage over David. I should be so much more at ease with God, clean with God, right before God, truthful, truthful, truthful. That's what he says when he mentions his truth parts where it came up. One time, there was a, it was at the Saturday night service years and years ago. We've had that forever, you know, that Saturday night service. Uh, there was a girl that came up after the service, kind of like we're going to do tonight with like an altar call. This gal came up, and she was just weeping uncontrollably, like she was a single gal in our church. And I had known her for a long time, so I was asking her, what's wrong? What happened? You know, I was thinking some tragedy. Maybe her parents died, some terrible thing. And she, she finally choked out the words, said, I slept with a guy last night. Oh, my gosh. She says, and it was, I feel so dirty, so horrible, so sinful. And I'm thinking in my life, in my heart, thinking, yeah, but it's so good you're confessing it. It's so good you can't take it. It's so good that it parts you and God so much that you're just weeping uncontrollably. You really want to get right, don't you? You really want to confess. Yeah, and so she did. What's so wonderful is we read on this psalm, this cleansing that David's asking for was her experience, so much so. I mean, this is years ago. This lady's moved on. She got married. She's had a couple of kids. She's doing wonderful. I tell you that story, just say, you know, actually being broken, actually feeling guilty, actually crying, actually being hurt, actually crying out to God for your mercy, oh Lord, is really, really good. She's like proof of it. Look how good it can be. When God forgives you, when the weight is lifted, when the guilt is gone, when the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. <laughs> Which Steve, David didn't even... Well, let's go to point two, but before we do, guilt wants to take you down little by little. It's like a cancer. Don't let it happen. Deal with it. It's like, a, it's like cancer. What do you do? You cut it out. Go cut it out. Get honest before God. Say, Lord, I... Let's be truthful here, Lord. It's confession. That's the first thing we learn. Pray to be clean. Second, pray for change. I turn the page here in my Bible and look at chapter, chapter 51, verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, hyssop. Hyssop is they take a branch and dis, a hyssop branch and dip it. And they use it over doorposts. It was a ceremonial cleansing kind of thing. And so he, he uses that imagery. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I'm an old Minnesota boy, so that wash me whiter than snow really hit home for me because, you know, I've been many times, and we've seen it in South Jersey too, where it snows and snows and snows and you go outside and it's just covered white, 
white, white, crystal clean. And everything just seems to be cleaned up. Like, I remember when, as a kid, even going outside at night, you know, you want to go build a snow fort or something, and mom lets you get all dressed up and go out, and you go out with your buddies or something like that, and every, the moonlight sparkling off the white snow. David uses the symmetry. Oh, Lord, I just got to be whiter than snow. Clean me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Do you realize you can be there? Do you realize that experience can be yours? The calm and quietness of everything, that the snow just hushes, and it's all cleaned up all white. That can be your heart. That's what God can do. David knew it. He's crying out to God for it. Next verse. This is a big one. In fact, let's look at verse 8 and verse 12. He says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So he uses this idea of joy or rejoicing twice. Now skip to verse 12. Ready? Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's bringing up joy and rejoicing at this point because of what I'm going to mention. How come if this is about Nathan the prophet going to David about adultery, about murder, about injustice for this little baby, then how come the psalm doesn't say anything about sex, doesn't say anything about immorality, doesn't say anything about adultery, doesn't say anything about lying, doesn't say anything about deception, doesn't say anything about betrayal? It's because those were just symptoms of the real issue. David, way before he fell in Bathsheba had lost his joy. Folks, when you lose your joy in the Lord, you are really in a bad place. You really are vulnerable to temptation because you're looking for a good time. You're looking for some fun. You're going to do some. Boy, you're in trouble now. And that's what happened to David. He lost the joy of the Lord. So, Lord, restore to me the joy. joy. I need the joy. And, of course, the guilt from what he did is tormenting him and torturing him, so that takes joy, too. You got nothing. So then you really fall, and that's what happened to David. And if you're here this morning and you don't have the joy of the Lord, probably one of the best prayers you could pray would be, Oh, Lord, clean me up and bring the joy back, because without it, I'm a dead duck. I'm in trouble. I'm a sitting duck for the devil. I'm going to fall again. Yeah. It's really true. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing I, I read past before and missed, and this time it just popped out of me, the absence of joy. Hmm. So he says this. Look at verses 9 through 11. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. So let, let's just get this done with, Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is not at all worried about losing his salvation. That's not at all what this is about. He's afraid he's going to lose the presence of God. He's, going to, he's afraid that 
He's saying, Lord, whatever you do, don't leave me. Please don't leave me now. Change me. That's what he wants. Did you catch those words? Create in me. Hide yourself from your sins. Blot it out. Cast not away from your presence. All those things are saying, Lord, you got to change me. Change me. Change me. I can't be like this anymore. i got to change. Bring back the joy of my salvation and change me. You know, honest to God, I get worried about some of you. Can we just talk? I, got, I get worried about you because sometimes it seems like you, me too, sometimes I'm more after pleasure. I'm more after comfort. I'm more after ease. I'm more after whatever than I am God. And what's so beautiful about this is we see a man saying, no, Lord, I don't care what it costs. You got you to gotta not remove your presence from me. You got to change me, Lord. You got to change me. See, that's the one that gets changed. That's the one that experiences revival. That's the one who really sees God, feels God, knows God. The one who says, God, I want you. I don't care if it's uncomfortable. I don't want comfort more than I want you. I don't want pleasure more than I want you. I want you. That's what David's saying here. It's powerful, isn't it? It's just unbelievably powerful. He wants change. This story teaches us to listen to guilt, doesn't it? Listen to guilt. Because guilt is what God uses often to change us. As I've worked with people for many years, I've realized guilt is like a sweet thing. You know, it's kind of like I'm standing here on the stage... And I have an option. This is the stage of my life. I can go out that door. I can go out that one. I can go back through the cafe. I can go out the middle door. I can go out this back door. Which one should I choose? How should I move? And you're asking in your life, well, where should I go? What should I do? Guilt can be a great guide to push you, pull you, lead you. Because it'll drive you to the Lord, to his spirit, to his presence, like it talks about. And that's the way you're led. Because you're listening to him. Guilt sometimes is what God uses. Like I said, it can be a torturer or it can be a sweet guide. Here David's saying, Lord, guide me. I've seen it true with many different people in our church. There's a, a book this week I was telling my wife about what I was preaching in Psalm 51. She says, oh, look at this. She was reading a book. It's called Sacred Privilege. It's by Kay Warren. You've probably heard of Rick Warren. He's the pastor out there at Saddleback Church in L.A. And this is his wife, Kay. And Sacred Privilege is the privilege of being a pastor's wife. And Kay's writing about that. Quite a good book, Lori said. She read to me this quote. I go, oh, I've got to use that in the sermon. Listen to what it says. Here's Kay Warren talking. She says, because we all fall into this, and she had too, and she just explained about that. She says, if you find yourself looking with contempt at other people, who have fallen, like David, and think, well, I'd never do that. Well, please consider the following. First, in misunderstanding the depth of your own depravity, you are, in effect, waving a big red flag to the enemy and saying, come get me. (laughs) We don't like to admit it, but the truth is, given the right circumstances, anyone can commit any sin. Don't protest too strongly. Your pride is setting you up for ruin, utter ruin. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride precedes a disaster, and an arrogant attitude precedes a fall. Rick, my husband, recently told a ministry friend seeking advice this. 
always do the humiliating thing. That's right. The thing that makes you the most humble. Because God gives grace to the humble, but He never will to the proud. We must have humble hearts if we want God's healing in our life. Oftentimes, we want God's healing really bad. And he says, it's right here. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, but, you know, I, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> really. It's for the humble. It's your choice. Will you be humble enough to get it? You want the change? Do you want it more than you want anything else? You want God's change? That's the person that is changed when you're finally desperate enough for the Lord. Thirdly, he not only prayed for cleansing and change, he prayed for commitment. Look with me back at Psalm 51, starting with verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. It's almost as though he's saying, if I get that joy back, I'll just start telling everybody about the joy of the Lord I have. I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you, because I'll tell them about my story, about how I turned to the Lord, and the Lord forgave me. It's like the result of dealing with your guilt is evangelism. The result of finding the joy of the Lord is evangelism. You're just going to tell people. Doesn't that make logical sense? If the people in the church are happy with being in the church and happy with being with the Lord and find joy in the Lord, what will they do? They'll go tell other people about it. If they don't have that, they won't. (laughs) It's that simple. The next verse kind of pulls it apart, too. Look what it says in verses 14 and 15. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In other words, I can't hold it back because I've been forgiven. Oh God, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Praise is the result of dealing with your guilt. Praise is the result of being forgiven. Praise is the result of having God bring the joy of the Lord back into your life. Do you remember, do you remember that, that story? Remember Jesus in Luke 15 told three stories. He told a story first about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and he lost one. It was gone somewhere. So he left the 99, says he went around searching for this lost sheep. And he comes back and says, hey, I found him. I found my sheep. And he comes back with his lost sheep and says, let's rejoice. And then there's a story he told secondly about a lady, a poor lady who had three coins and she lost one. She couldn't find it. Went through the whole house cleaning and sweeping. Finally found her lost coin and said, Look, I found my lost coin. Let's rejoice. And then he tells the story, lastly, about a man who had two sons. And one said, give me my inheritance now. I want to run off. And so he did. He's called the prodigal son. Remember, he ran off, spent it all on prostitutes and everything. Lost every dime. Comes walking back to his dad, wanting to get right with his dad and be back on the farm. And his dad welcomes him with open arms and says, hey, let's have a party. My son who was lost is now found. And after each one of those stories, what did he say? And so do the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents and comes back to the Lord. Oh, man, that's what it's all about. It's the only one way for any human being to come back to the Lord. Because like David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. We're all sinners. And we come back to the Lord. It's our only hope, and it's then the joy comes, the rejoicing comes. And he mentions that here, just so beautifully. I couldn't help but remember it. Look at verses 16 and 17. We'll kind of end there. 18 and 19, he's talking about Israel, just summing things up. But in 16 and 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He says, these are just rituals. Here's what you really want. Verse 17, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He says, that's when my sacrifices really mean something, when they come from my heart, and my heart is broken before God, and I'm willing to allow him to have control. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart is a willingness to say, okay, Lord, my plan is going to be broken for your plan. My desire for your desires. What I really wanted, my appetite, my will, I'll give it up for yours. That's really revival, you know. That's what happens in a person's heart. That contrite heart. When I was just a young, young believer, someone gave me a book. And um, I cut my teeth in this book. as Roy Hessian, The Calvary Road. It says at the bottom, a classic with millions in print. I don't know if it was then, but I mean, we're talking 40 plus years ago now. And you open it up, and I guess this person knew this. The first chapter is on brokenness. L- listen to what it says. Right at the very beginning, it says this. In heaven, they are praising God all the time for his victories. Whatever may be our experience of failure and barrenness, and that's what we're preaching about, right? When you feel like you failed, you screwed up, you messed up. He is never defeated. His power is boundless. And we, on our part, have only to get into a right relationship with God, and we shall see his power being demonstrated in our hearts and lives and service. And I thought to myself, well, that's what I want. And his victorious life will, be, will fill us and overflow through us to other people. Isn't that what we all want? And that is revival in its essence. If, however, we are to come into this right relationship with God, the first thing we must learn is that our wills must be broken to his will. Yeah. To be broken is the beginning of revival. This was the life-changing book for me when I was just a baby believer. Probably 19 when I read this. It's painful, yeah. It's humiliating, yeah. But it's the only way. It's being not I, but Christ. (laughs) And the C of Christ is really just an I bent over. The Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself and doesn't confess its sin and wants to go its own way and stand up for its own rights and seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will and admits its wrongs, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights, and discards its own glory for the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a dying to self and self-attitudes. Brokenness is daily. You don't just do it once. It is simply a response of humility, of conviction, the conviction God brings in your heart all the time. I remember hearing John Piper, the famous pastor in Minnesota, who's such an intellect, saying that one time. He says, boy, he's preaching preaching to his church, and he says, boy, I hope you never think that brokenness is something. Yeah, I did that once. (laughs) He said, you don't get it then. It starts the day you're saved, but it's a continual thing because God will use sweet guilt to transform your life, to give you greater joy, to bring you fulfillment in life, to make your life effective and your ministry effective. When you break before him and say, okay, Lord, help 
can't do without you. You've got to be there with me. Your hunger for God is satisfied only in him. Well, looks like I'm coming to the end. I've got to finish up here. In fact, why don't I, why don't I just do that here? Uh, one time, there was a man who came to my church uh, way back when. This is in fact, we were in the old, old chapel. A little chapel there. It was years and years ago. And he was probably 20 years my senior. And he came to me after the service and talked to me. And um, I noticed his contrite heart, his brokenness. And he said, well, maybe we can get together and talk sometime. You see, I used to be a pastor. Oh, you were? Yeah. Why were you a pastor? Well, I was a pastor out in Michigan. Little church, big church. Well, we actually had thousands of people coming. You did? Like back in the 1960s? Yeah. Yeah. So it was like a megachurch before there were megachurches. And I noticed when he talked, he kind of sounded like God. He had one of those preacher voices I wish I had, you know had this great voice, like an actor or something. And, and he said, yeah, but I messed up. What do you mean? Well, I had an affair with a lady in the choir. My marriage was in big trouble. My wife and I left the church. You know, we tried to put our life back together and our kids. Never worked. I left. Turned to alcohol. Got all messed up. Became rather, rather wealthy. said even... And then one day, he said, I met this gal. And we started talking, and she wanted to ask all these questions about my old life. And so I told her, and I'm telling her the gospel and everything. She says, well, I want that. I want to become a Christian. <laughs> he says, here I am, a guy living in the world, living in sin, doing all these terrible things. And she's, she's asking me how to become a Christian. So I tell her, and she wants to pray. I'm like, well, let's pray then. So she becomes a believer. This turns him back to the Lord, and they come to Fellowship Alliance Chapel. Because they moved to Midford. I'm like, oh my gosh. So he's saying all this to me. He says, but you know, I'm worthless, man. I mean, I messed up really bad. He says, you know, in between those two women I was married to, I had another woman. I got her pregnant. I have a boy out of wedlock that's running around. Whoa, sounds like David. He says, but God couldn't use me. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't it say if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Doesn't the Bible say here, doesn't it seem to teach us in, in Psalm 51 that if you will confess, you can be forgiven and restored? And oh, yeah, there's consequences. Oh, boy, tell me about it. Like with my kids and stuff, it's terrible. I've had to go through it, trying to restore my relationship with them. I said, well, let's trust God. So we prayed with him, and I saw him getting healed week after week, month after month in the church. One day he says, you know what? I can't believe this happened. He says, the Southern Baptists came to me. They got a little church in Lakehurst. They want me to take us down to 20 people. He says, but yeah, I shouldn't take that. I'm not worthy. I shouldn't do it. I said, yes, you should. Go for it, man. He took the church. He grew up to 150 people in the first year. The thing was growing. Just to, God was still using him. God can still use you. You're not worthless. God wants to forgive you, wants to restore you. This is the whole sermon's about. Lord, I want you to wash me. Lord, I want you to change me. Lord, I want to be committed to doing what you called me to do, what I messed up about. Yeah, he'll do that. That's what he's offering here. That's what I'm offering you here this morning. But it's all about you getting right with him first. It's all about you confessing. 
confession. It's so amazing, isn't it? It cleans you up. You need it so bad. You can have it. It's all about you and the Lord. It's all about you coming to him. Let me end with this. I got this song. Here it is. We're going to come and sing. The worship team is going to come out and sing this song. And if God so touches your heart, I'd love you to come forward. I'll pray with you right here. We'll get little circles. I was doing that before in the last service. It's this song. Uh, Doug Ingram is going to come out and lead us in. And he said, here's the lyrics, Marty. I want you to see these. And I thought, well, when I read these, I thought, this is it. Listen to what it says. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling you. We want people to hear God's call and follow it, right? We're talking about that. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Can I pray with you? We learn from this whole psalm that what? When you're guilty, pray. So let's pray. Lord, I come to you in the name of Jesus on behalf of everyone here. And why don't you just say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me, I've sinned. Lord, forgive me for, you fill it in. What's the blank? Was it a betrayal? Was it a dishonesty? Was it a lie? Was it immoral? Was it so ugly you can hardly put a name on it? Good, confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're confessing right now, God, is, God has touched your heart and you're, you're revealing. Just raise your hand. I want to see you. Confess it to me. Raise your hand. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep raising your hand. Just raise it. It's, it's, this is good for your soul. This is what God does. He heals you. And you say, yeah, it's me. Father, we're raising our hands. We're opening our lips. We're asking you, restore the joy of my salvation, Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me whiter than snow. And I believe your word says, you will, if I'll tell you about it, if I'll be truthful. Let no one here hide anything, Lord, but be honest and open before you. And so here we go, Lord. We're committing ourselves now with new life new joy, new heart, new forgiveness because Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord because if we confess, you promise to show mercy toward us who are sinners. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to stand with us. We're going to sing. And I'm going to give you a chance to come on down. I'm going to jump off the stage. I'm going to pray with people down here. If you raised your hand, maybe you'd want to come down and pray with us. And there's, there's, you know, what's going to hold you back? You're going to be ashamed. Like we didn't know you were a sinner. We're all sinners. Why would you be ashamed? I'd actually be proud of you. Because I'd go, wow, this person's being honest. 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Come on forward. It's good for you to face that shame. Face it up and say, oh yeah, I'm going up there because man, I need it. If God's talking to you, hear his call. Let's sing about it.